eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. He is a very outgoing guy. Um, he is, I, I loved him as a teammate. You know, he, he was such a great competitor and a great guy off the field. Well, most of the time, I probably couldn't hang with those guys as long as, <laughs> you know, I might be able to hang with it for a couple hours, but right. as hard as they go, I, I you know, my liver would be done. In December 1995, Jumanji was released in theaters and the life of Jeff Nelson would change forever. He was dealt from the only team he had ever known, the Mariners to the Yankees on the eve of their dynasty. The ill-fated Sterling Hitchcock deal for Seattle, Ned of the Mariners, one season of Hitchcock before he was unloaded to the Padres, where he did have a renaissance. In exchange, Seattle sent reliever Nelson and first baseman Tino Martinez to New York, cornerstones of the Yankees' run. That following season, Nelson, Tino, and the Yanks would win their first title since 78, and then three more World Series in 98, 99, and 2000. Nelson was part of a lockdown, airtight Yankees bullpen that once it harnessed a lead, rarely if ever gave it up, primarily because of their closer, Mariano. Now, Nelson's seen three quarters of Yankees pitching history, having been a player during the David Cohn and David Wells perfect games, and then calling Domingo Herman's perfecto for the Yes Network in Oakland. His timing is impeccable. This is Jeff Nelson's New York accent. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. In St. Louis, where it's 100 degrees, so, uh, you know, I kind of like the heat. You know, Oakland was in the 50s, and now we add 50 to that, and that's where we are in St. Louis. One of my favorite quotes is, the the coldest winter I ever experienced was summer in the Bay Area. So you you guys were out there earlier in the week as Domingo Herman throws the perfect game for the New York Yankees. And as I just mentioned, you, you had been experiencing this as a player in 98 and 99. Did you get any of the same vibes or flashbacks as what you saw Coney and, and Wells do? I, I did, you know, as a player, you know, you sit in the booth and everything starts coming back as a player. And, and when I'm sitting in the bullpen at those times, you don't want to do anything different. You start doing things. The superstition starts becoming even more, uh, more important as far as hey, don't move, don't do the. I mean, don't do anything different. You know, if you're drinking a cup, keep it. Uh, don't change the cups. Don't change the seats. Don't you know? Start talking to the same people. Don't start doing anything different. I find myself doing the same thing in the booth. Really? Yeah, I'm looking. I'm like, I'm not throwing my tea away. My hot tea became iced tea, 
And, you know, I'm not throwing any papers away. I'm doing the same thing. And Ryan Rucco's next to me to my left, and he's standing up. I'm like, okay, it's the last couple innings. Do I stand up? If I stand up, I might mess this thing up. And then Meredith Morakovitz was to my right, and it was cold. It was chilly, and there's no heat in the booth, and she had her sweatshirt on. Now, she had to go down and, you know, prepare for the end of the game to do interviews. And all of a sudden, she started taking her shirt off, and I, so her sweatshirt off. And I was like, wait a minute. What are you doing? You're taking your sweatshirt off. You're going to mess this thing up. And it's, it's just ridiculous stuff you start thinking about. So when you're a player, I'm sure you're aware of the broadcaster anti-jinx. Don't mention the no-hitter. Don't mention the perfect game. You can jinx it. I don't know how you felt as a player. Maybe you thought that was crazy. Now as a broadcaster, were you guys avoiding mentioning it by name? You know, as a player, you never do. You never mention it. So I was like, okay, I'm not mentioning it. Mentioning it. And I know a lot of uh, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, that superstition stuff and the old don't mention a no-hitter or a perfect game. That's, you know, that's for the birds. Now, the radio side, they did. They mentioned it. And we danced around it. You know, Ryan Rucco did a great job of dancing around it and not calling it a perfect game, not even calling it perfect, but dance around the words. And I'm like, listen, I'm not going to be the first one saying it. If he's going to be, <laughs> if the first one's going to be saying it, it's going to be Ryan. So we did a great job of dancing around it. I'm like, yeah, I was a part of them in 98 and 99 and with Coney and Wells and everybody knew what Coney and Wells did. So w without me saying, Hey, they had a perfect game back then and we might be witnessing the same thing. So we did a good job, you know, not saying the word. You guys have talked about this after the broadcast that perhaps because of the suspension and because of his previous two outings, Domingo Herman might've been pitching for his spot in the rotation. Also with some other bodies coming back into the rotation do you think that that locked him in more than usual for that performance? You know, I don't know. You know, he's kind of a he's a quirky pitcher in a sense that, you know, he can dominate. There was, I think, it was last year. He was one of the most consistent starters last year. I mean, and, and you know, he would go deep in the game. He has the tendency to, you know, not get his pitch count elevated. Uh, the last two outings were awful, but the outings before though those two, he pitched against the Dodgers, and I forget who, who else, but he got into the seventh inning against the Dodgers, pitched six innings the next outing, and he only gave up one run in each of those outings, and the next thing you know, he lays two eggs. Uh, so he may have not even have been in this rotation to start the season because you had Montas, you had Rodon, and also Nestor Cart. Cortez and those three would have been in there and okay you're probably a bullpen guy you're a swing guy so who knows if he would have been pitching for his his rotational spot but I don't think that motivated him I just think he has this kind of stuff he's he's capable I mean not throwing a perfect game all the time but he's capable of doing what he's did against the A's the David Wells perfecto goes down in history I was actually randomly at that game that is Beanie Babies game yeah and he was infamously hung over from the night before and goes out there and puts his hand on his head as the, the final out is recorded. And so it, it goes down in lore. Did you guys know going into that day that Wells was feeling it from the night before? No, we had no idea. But the thing of it is, is if those guys don't go out, I'm not saying they go out and get hammered all the time, but if they don't go out and settle themselves down, and that's just with, with David Cohn and Dave Wells, you know, just to have a couple of drinks at nighttime just to settle their nerves down. This is how they go about the the way they start. And that's perfect because they've had such great success doing that. And, and I think it helps them not think about their start. That's one of the things I couldn't do. I couldn't start because I would start thinking about that start right away. And that just drives you nuts. And it was their way to probably, hey, get me off of whatever I'm supposed to do the next day. I'll lock in when I go to the park. So nobody knew, but it wasn't like it, it wasn't... Uh, 
as far as him having a couple of drinks. And I mean, he usually does that. So it, it wasn't, a, I mean, I, I guess it was a surprise finding out of what he did until the early morning, but not as far as having drinks. Let me tell you, I've never seen anybody command a bar like David Wells. I was actually in San Francisco for the Super Bowl one year, and he was out there as well. And and we met up at a bar, not because he was there to meet me, but just because yeah. he was there. We said hello, and people started recognizing him one by one, wanted to come up, shake his hand, take a picture, buy him a beer. And he said yeah. yes. To, he said yes to every one of those beers to the point where people were buying him JMO shots, and and he was like, let's do those too. <laughs> And the entire bar was like chanting and cheering alongside him. And he was loving every minute of it. I said, this is the lore of Boomer Wells. He just, he's the most popular guy. Have you ever seen him hold court like that? He is a very outgoing guy. Um, he's, I, I loved him as a teammate. You know, he, he was such a great competitor and a great guy off the field. Most of the time, I probably couldn't hang with those guys as long as, <laughs> you know, I might be able to hang with it for a couple hours, but right. as hard as they go, I, I, you know, my liver would be done, but you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, uh, a very outgoing, full of life, happy, and, and he'll talk to everyone. That's just the way he is. What a touched baseball life for you to have been present for three perfect games of the four in Yankees history and the David Cohn game is filled with magic as well because it's Yogi Berra day of right. all days who caught Don Larson's perfect game how special and, and how mystical did that day feel at the old stadium yeah and it's it's really I mean you think about it, it's really strange to have you know Don Larson and Yogi Berra there witnessing David Cohn and Joe Girardi you know behind the plate and, you know, you had Beanie Baby Day for David Wells. You know, it's just a shame that we were out in Oakland and then Herman throws a perfect game. And there was nothing special about that as far as, you know, as far as giveaway night. It was just the Yankees were in town playing the A's. Uh, but it just, you know, goes to show you with different special things that happen. I got lucky last year even calling with John Sterling, uh, Aaron Judge's 60-second home run in Texas. I was like, wow. My limited amount of broadcast career, I've gotten I've gotten to call a few a few big moments, and uh, you know even this year we were in Philadelphia, and the Marlins have never had a a cycle by any player in history, and Luisa Rice hits the first cycle in history, and I was there with Paul Severino calling that, so I'm like, oh wow, I'm like what's next? You've got a touchstone of epic baseball moments. Now the question is, in Oakland, did you see the raccoon or the possum, one of the two that runs the the press box back there? Yeah, I wanted to. I was. I wanted to <laughs> with it, and apparently they, but they buttoned everything up. I mean, they had duct tape all over the place. I think now they have a uh, on on site exterminator. In oh, case good. That happens. Uh, they put in a semi new wood floor. So uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to see him or her, whatever it was. You began your career with the Seattle Mariners, and then are traded to the New York Yankees in the Tino Mar with Tino Martinez. Uh, in the Sterling Hitchcock deal. And so two of the anchors of that dynasty Yankee team, yourself and Tino, come over in that trade. What's, what's your feelings when you arrive in New York during a time before the dynasty was born? Yeah, you know, in some ways I was surprised that we both got traded because I thought we would come back as Mariners. I mean, we went to the ALCS in 95. Maybe we were going to try to do it again. But you got traded to a team that, 
we just beat in 95. So you knew they had great a great chance of going back to the playoffs as well. Plus, I absolutely love pitching in old, old Yankee Stadium. So, you know, it wasn't like you were getting traded to a last place team or a team that, you know, has no shot at making the playoffs. You're getting traded to the New York Yankees. And, you know, at least if you weren't going to be a Mariner, a, and I grew up in Baltimore, I thought I'd probably be an Oriole way before I was a Yankee. But you get traded to such a historical franchise, it's like, hey, this isn't bad, you know. And then all of a sudden, you go and you're, you're, you know, in, in spring training with some of the greats that I played against, and unfortunately, Mattingly wasn't there. But Tino, I played with since minor league ball every single year, so you know there was some familiarity there, and you know, just putting on the pinstripes the first time, you, you know, was incredible. Why did you love pitching at Old Yankee Stadium? I think the the fans are so passionate. It's just such mayhem, and, and you know, as a visitor, they really let you have it. And I, I think it's it's great. You, you know, they as a home player, they let you have it on occasion as well if you're not doing well. But it was just, you know, I guess the history and even East Coast sports in general, wherever you're playing in Baltimore, Philly, Boston, uh, those fans are such passionate fans. So as a visitor, even a home home team you're getting the best fans you're getting you know things that you've probably never heard before and, and you know come out of people's mouths <laughs> little kids mouths or whatever but it, it, the the excitement I think drove me to like it a lot and and uh you know you really feed off of that kind of that kind of excitement from a fan what a moment in time to arrive as the Yankees are going on that roller coaster ride. And you were part of all four championships, 96, then 98, 99, and 2000. What do you remember from the first one in 96 in game six against the Braves when you guys clinched at home? Well, it was one that we never had in it. We didn't have interleague play back then. So the only thing that we knew was what we saw on TV. And we knew they had great pitching. They had a great team. Uh, you know, we witnessed that the first couple games in Yankee Stadium, game one and game two, we're like, wow, you know, they were just carving people up and watching Greg Maddox throw. It was just amazing how he just outguessed and knew exactly what hitters were looking for and threw the opposite pitch. So, uh, you know, as that, as the series kept going on, you know, we kept getting more confident, more confident. We had a long layover between the ALCS and the World Series, and I think that hurt us a little bit to start. But then we come back, we win the first three, everybody's counting us out, the Braves are counting us out. Then, we, I mean, we lose the first two, win the next three, and we'd come home, and we we pretty much know that we're going to win it at Yankee Stadium. And then you just don't get complacent. I mean, we had an owner, Mr. Steinmeier, never allowed us to get complacent. He was, he was constantly wanting to win every single year. So it wasn't one of those things, hey, we're satisfied with one. You got to go and get more. That's pretty amazing. And you were there for the three-peat as well. And I'm wondering, did the pressure of trying to do it every single year begin to emotionally, mentally wear you guys by the time you get to 99 and 2000? You know, I, I think it was this excitement that drove us. I mean, everybody had a desire to get back. It wasn't... I don't think there was any pressure at all. You know, if you look at 98, we won 114 games in the regular season. So maybe that was probably more pressure of getting to the World Series and winning the World Series because you win so many ball games, you don't want to all of a sudden lose it. And then the next thing you know, 114 means nothing. I mean, I was in Seattle when 01, we won 116 and we didn't finish it off. So, hey, you had a great year, but that was it. You know, I, okay, 116, I think that's probably. You know, most likely will ever be you know heard of or seen again, but 
as far as the pressures every year, you know, it was just we everybody on the team had a desire to get back. And, you know, it was just so much fun getting to that World Series, winning the World Series. And, and you never got satisfied. You always want more. You always want to win more. You always also had veterans at the end of their careers perhaps looking for the elusive championship. And I'm wondering, those guys that cycled through, did that help keep a thirst and a hunger up because they hadn't done it, whereas maybe some of the guys that were on the team for a couple of years already had some rings? Yeah, I think so. You know, you, you look at... It seemed like Mr. Steinbrenner always wanted to mix things up. You know, we won 125 games in 98. The next thing you know, in 99 in spring training, David Wells and Graham Lloyd get traded, and here comes Roger Clemens. It's like, well, I thought we were going to try to repeat with the same team, and all of a sudden we get a superstar pitcher. And then you're trying to do it for him. You know, David Justice comes over to us in 2000 and was probably could have been our MVP. And and I was just reading, I think he just got traded. I mean, it, it was a few days ago on the date that he got traded to the Yankees back in 2000. Um, so it was constantly mixing it up. And, you know, he would keep the core. I mean, he would keep probably 18 to 20 guys, and then all of a sudden five guys would come back and they wouldn't be there the next year, and you get superstar players. You know, I lived in Seattle, and some of my friends, best friends were Jay Buhner and Ken Griffey Jr., and next thing you know, I'd be going over to their house and it's like, hey, can you believe you got Chuck Knobloch? Is that all you guys do is get better? Oh, you got you got Roger Clemens? Are you kidding me? But it was just those kind of, and you would laugh. You're like, hey, it looks like we have a great shot at winning another one. It was an amazing time because those Yankees just simply couldn't be beaten in big games. They just always seemed to to lurk and lurk like a horror film uh, slasher, and then they would strike. And you guys were, you were part of that for a number of years. But as you said, in 01, you were on the other side because you were with the Mariners, historically great season. You get through the Indians in the divisional round and then face off against the Yankees of the ALCS. Your regular season would suggest that you guys were a better team than the Yankees, but they took the first two, you got game three, and then they took the next two and win in five. What was it about the Yankees team when you were on the opposite end that you saw come back to haunt you when you were with the Mariners? Well, you mentioned big games, and when you're playing at Yankee Stadium, even during the regular season, every game seems like a big game. You know, whether it's the media, Mr. Starman, or the fans, you know, you lose one, and it's like, uh, you know, the road's going to cave in, you, you know. But so every game is big. So playing in the playoffs in, in in New York, yes, there was pressure, but it was a lot less because you had the pressures of winning every single game, every single day. And in Seattle, there wasn't those pressures. You know, it was like, you know, it was just guys are just happy to be there. I mean, we won one sixteen, and you want to win it. You wanted to win it for the the team. Uh, you know, the organization, the city, Lou Pinella, you know, he's never, he wanted to get to the Mariners, to the World Series. But being on the other side, you know, and being in the playoffs takes a certain mentality. We just didn't, I don't think we had that offensively in Seattle. I think we did. But starting pitching wise, I don't think the mentality was there for in, for Seattle. And there were some of the relievers that were down in the bullpen that, that just didn't have good postseason history and it wound up showing against the Yankees. It's kind of a crushing end to a wonderful season because it's also the last time before last year that the Mariners make the playoffs. Right. So it, it begins just a crazy drought, but that was an iconic regular season. To be part of the Yankees now as a broadcaster and, as you mentioned, be part of some historic moments on the call of 
Judge's 62 last year and Domingo Herman's perfect game. What's that relationship like that with the organization and the, the, the history of the game and the team that you now have from a different vantage point? Yeah, you know, it's a team that I always root for. I, I still root for the Yankees and, you know, one of the few, few teams I do. And the organization is so great. The players are so welcoming and they, they talk to you. And, and uh, you know, no matter who they are, the coaches are great. Uh, the organization, always, the Yankees have always done a great job of keeping their alumni involved, whether it's appearances at the stadium or, or at fantasy camps. But being a broadcaster is a little bit different. And, you know, I know the game's hard. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy that I'm not going to sugarcoat things as far as, you know, if they did something that wasn't great on the field, I'll explain why they did not Not that, oh, this guy is a terrible player. But if they do something well on the field, I'm going to say, hey, look at this play. This is a great play or this is a great pitch. And if it's if it's not that great, then I'll say, hey, you know what, maybe if they would have done this differently, then it probably would have turned out better. But the game's so hard and guys go up and down as far as struggles and, you know, I have had the same success as they had. I've had the same failure as they had. So it's easier for me to kind of project that when you've had both and you relate to what they're going through, whether it's a great series or, or a poor series. Let's wrap up then without sugarcoating this. What do you think the Yankees' potential is this year to to potentially get to October and beyond? Yeah, you know, it's with every team. I think everybody's saying, hey, they got to get healthy. You know, you need your starting pitching back. You need Rodon. You need Nestor Cortez to come back. Severino to get more consistent. You know, he's only had seven starts, so hopefully that gets a little bit better. You need Aaron Judge back. You know, he'll be back I don't sometime after the All-Star break, whether it's the end of July, beginning of August. I, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I, I This is a playoff team. I, I don't know about the division. You know, they have the Orioles that's been outstanding, and the Rays got a off to such a great start and they're a really good team uh but the yankees will be there you know it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge if they have to play that that wild card game one of it's the best two out of three so then you have to go through what three levels to get to the world series but it's a very good team and they're the expectation expectation level is through the roof and i i think they make the playoffs it's just a matter if they can stay healthy and be consistent and how far they go Jeff, I appreciate the time very much. Thanks for uh, being patient as I'm feeding my son here. You're a good man and a father of four girls. So you, you've you seen intense situations beyond the baseball diamond. You know, coming in, coming in to hold uh, a lead for Mariano or something like that in, in the playoffs of the World Series probably seems like child's play compared to raising four daughters. Yeah, and changing diapers, exactly. I'd rather pitch than change diapers, but you had to do it. But I mean, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Many thanks to Jeff for joining us here on New York Accent. You heard me mention this at the end of the interview. I had a baby in my lap during that interview because, as I've mentioned here on the pod before, we had our first child, a son, AJ, back in late May. So he's about five weeks old. My wife had to step out, and we were scheduled to tape this interview. So I had AJ duty. So I put him on my lap, and if you watch on on YouTube, you will see... Just behind that little barrier that I put up on the desk, I'm feeding my baby on my lap. The reason I put up a little barrier was because I thought it'd be kind of distracting and I didn't want to take away from what Jeff was saying. But yeah, there there you see me trying to make sure that AJ does not act up during the interview. So a little history here on New York Accent. You know, Jeff was part of those Yankees teams of 96, 98, 99, 2000 that won championships. And then he left and was part of that 
Mariners team that won 116 games in 2001 and fell to the Yankees. And I remember thinking, even though the Yankees lost that Game 7 of the 01 World Series on Luis Gonzalez's bloop, that that era was defined by Yankees teams that really did feel like a, sl a slasher film that I had referenced in the interview, that you simply could not kill them, that there was just no way to beat them. And that is why Luis's loop in the 01 World Series and then the, the loss to the Angels in 02 and the way the Marlins won the 03 World Series seemed so shocking because what the Yankees had built through the 90s and then into 2000 was this superiority in big spots that no matter what, they came up with the big hit. No matter what, they made the big play. No matter what, they got the big out. And they were just defined by by that type of DNA throughout those runs. And so back then, you did not expect them to ever lose a big series. You never expected them to ever lose a World Series. Everything always seemed to to be tilted in their direction. And it was because of guys like Jeff Nelson, who were just amazingly steady in their roles. The Yankees had this incredible ability to bring in role guys that fit perfectly and then watch them perform on the biggest stage as though they had been there a million times over. Nelson's a good example of that. Scott Broch is a great example of that. Paul O'Neill became a cornerstone of that dynasty. And so many others that had previous lives somewhere else and then stepped in. He had mentioned David Justice, the former Mets like Darrell and, and Dwight Gooden, Jose Canseco and Cecil Fielder and Ruben Sierra and... All of those guys that just seemed to, once they got to the Yankees, take on the perfect attitude of big spot, we got this. And they just seemed completely unbeatable. And I, I've talked about the George Steinbrenner dynamic before. He's such an interesting figure. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Tommy John on the, the podcast, and, and he had become close. He had grown close to George back in the, the 80s, the early 80s. And George is known now as a guy that would go the extra mile for a championship. And that's his legacy, that the, the current Yankees ownership wouldn't do that. But what is kind of forgotten because the Yankees haven't won a championship in a long time now, since 09 and only one since 2000, is that George was in many ways a disturbance to the success that George's impatience really rocked the boat unnecessarily throughout the 80s. And who knows what the Yankees would have become had George continued to, to finagle and put his finger in things. The, the best thing that could have happened to them was that he was removed from meddling so that they could build a core through the farm system and all those guys could come up and then the touch of let's go to the extra mile for, as Jeff mentioned, the Chuck Knobloch, the Roger Clemens. Let's keep sustaining the success. That's that's where he was great. And I bring this up because it ties into Jeff and we just heard Steve Cohen last week speak uh, after many Mets fans wanted him to say something, anything about the current state of the, of the Mets, which is just much to much dismay around Mets Nation. And I think the hope romanticizing it is that Steve Cohen is like George Steinbrenner, stop at nothing to build a winner and build a champion multiple times over. And yet I think, interestingly, Steve Cohen has learned 
that that's not the way to do it, at least not in 2023. That the way to build a winner now is not spend, 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 and always just keep out spending your foes, but instead you have to build a farm system because you're not going to be able to keep everybody forever and just totally outgun the, the rest of the opposition. And so what he has done is, I think, smartly spend the resources now, which is money financially, to try to build a winner and then not trade any trade away any of the, the farm system so that you can keep replenishing the winning. Now, the problem is they have not done the winning this year with the buying. So the purchase of Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander and Francisco Lindor to a lesser degree because they traded for him then spent for him and other free agent uh, signings like Kodai Senga and others have just not paid the dividends that they were supposed to. But when I heard Cohen say he doesn't just want to, you know, trade away everybody or trade for everybody, but instead be very much more patient and disciplined, hang on to Buck, hang on to Epler, etc. I thought in many ways it was the exact opposite of George Steinbrenner and yet with Steinbrenner's financial might. Steve Cohen likes being mentioned. He likes being noticed. There's no doubt. He's not a shadow owner. But he is not a guy that seems to want to go down the road of big, splashy trades and impatience because he can't deal with losing, which in many ways at times made the Yankees a bit of a clown show. I mean, after the 77 and 78 championships, they did get back there in 81. But throughout the 80s, the the whole Billy Martin thing was a circus and then splashy free agents that amounted to very little, like Dave Winfield and like Ricky Henderson, that were very good players, but they were they were never enough to get the Yankees over the hump. And then the firing and hiring of manager after manager, Stump Merrill and Lou Pinnell, and the list goes on and on to the 80s, Yogi Berra, made the Yankees very unstable and not a model organization. They were a joke in many ways. The Billy Martin situation on and off, on and on again, off, off again for more than a decade was the epicenter of that. So I think what Steve Cohen said was the right thing, and let's see if he can hold to it. But it was anti-George in many ways, even though he's got the financial might to be a George-esque figure in the game. That will do it for this episode, this holiday week episode of New York Accent, thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio. On the national side of things, you can listen to us using the free Odyssey app and just click on CBS Sports Radio when you're in there or on Sirius XM Channel 158 if you don't get CBS Sports Radio in your New York City area. This is once again a podcast about the greatest players, coaches, managers that ever did what they did here in New York or grew up here in New York if you're an entertainer or otherwise and had the sense of the city. Previous episodes are available on this podcast feed. Just search New York Accent and on the WFAN YouTube channel. Until next week, have a great week, everybody. And this is an Odyssey original series.